Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit news feed, we're talking about the implications of the Supreme Court ruling officially on Roe v. Wade, upending nearly 50 years of constitutional abortion protection. Nick, we got a lot to get through today, so I'll let you roll into it. We got a lot to get through, George. So obviously, this is the big news of the week. Really shocking, disappointing, and quite frankly, not surprising because we knew this was coming, but it was here on Friday morning. The United States Supreme Court released its decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, and within that decision, struck down Roe v. Wade, which had upheld for nearly 50 years the constitutional right to an abortion in the United States. The decision was written by Justice Samuel Alito with additional concurring opinions. Uh, and when that decision came out, it immediately ended federal protection for a woman's right to an abortion. Right now, the public policy landscape is complete and utter chaos. There are trigger laws that went into effect. There are trigger laws that went into effect and now being are now being blocked by state justices. The public policy uh, status of abortion access in a good amount of American states is now completely upended. It's complete and utter chaos. This decision comes despite Pew Research polling suggesting that 61% of Americans believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And the additional call out is, of course, along the partisan and religious divides. Among the most salient demographic determinants of Americans' feelings on abortion is actually age, with young people under 29 indicating a 74% uh, favorability towards abortion the legalization of abortion in all or most cases. But George, a huge amount of the population just lost a constitutional right. What are you thinking? I my mind goes to what are the what are the follow-on impacts here and what what the next steps are going to entail. And it's going to be a state by state battle. It means that every local election, every state election is is now also a referendum on what that population believes the state of a uh, woman's right to choose should be. And it's going to be far more prominent in that. I'm also watching the Texas SB8 law, which actually allows the, uh, the public to essentially sue anybody for aiding and abetting uh, an abortion. So that means if somebody needs to drive out of state, the person driving a woman out of state, now this is not criminal, but that person driving them out, so let's say you take a lift out of state to go get an abortion, uh, that lift driver can be sued up to $10,000, as well as anybody, I don't know, uh, giving them logic. Heck, anybody who serves them a freaking burger on the way out, you're aiding and abetting. Anybody who picks up a phone call, I don't even know where the limits lie, but it's very clear you're turning a very dangerous economic engine on into a almost red scare-like something out of a page of a handsmaid tale 
of getting people to report on each other. Also, I'm concerned about the ability for technology and geofencing in particular, as well as uh, mandates that allow courts to subpoena information from organizations like Google or Telecom to say, hey, I want to have anybody who searches the words abortion, solutions, how-tos, or anything like that in this geographic area, I want all that information because technically it's now a federal offense. There is a lot of second order impacts that I'm kind of paying attention to, uh, while also be very concerned by, but wondering where nonprofits are going to pick up the battles on these different lines. Yeah, George, that's, those are good points. Some of the things I'm thinking about is just some of the news stories that have come out of this that show that women who were undergoing medical procedures, doctors literally had to stop what they were doing to contact lawyers to see what they were allowed to do or not do. And the health, the direct health of women immediately came into question across the country. Something to pay attention to is while we're focused on abortion right now, rightly, and women's right to choose Clarence Thomas's uh, concurring opinion uh, in agreeing with Roe v. Wade was one of the most reactionary Supreme Court concurring opinions ever written, calling into question the right to contraception, the right to same-sex intercourse, and uh, the right to same-sex marriage, and, and immediately suggested revisiting those cases. And I don't think the court's quite there yet, but that was explicitly mentioned by a Supreme Court justice. And uh, it's, it's scary, to be honest. It's scary and disgusting. Yeah, there's no guaranteed rights. Nothing that you have uh, fought for and seemingly won is ever permanent. And that's, you know, there's a, there's a very much an exclamation point on that right now where even though the work of a, you know, a nonprofit in the social sector may have achieved a win, keeping that win seems to be something that will require ongoing diligence. A note on Justice Thomas also, I had this, I asked you this question earlier and I'll play it with our audience right now. What do you think the average lifespan of our founding fathers, you know, sort of like when we were knocking it all out in like 1780 or so, what do you think the average lifespan was? Do you remember, Nick? I think I said something like 38, 39. So it's, it's 44. The average lifespan was 44. So when you set a political body motion, one of the three branches of the government and say you have a lifetime tenure, you're like, yeah, maybe they'll hang on until age 50. If Justin Thomas has been in the seat for 30 years, that is can't beat what the founders had in mind. You know, there is no question now that this is a politically driven body. It is not something that represents the, the zeitgeist or the, the population's desires. This is something that is stacked with political appointees. The Supreme Court numbers have changed in the past. I think there's been as little as five or it's 10. Like, look, something needs to change because the court is removing rights of large swaths of population against what the desires of that population is. It's, you know, 
it's authoritarian and it's, it's calling into question the validity of what seems to be a, a sham branch of our government. No, I agree. And I think where this points us to for many organizations is November because this was a calculated political long game played by, let's face it, a political party in the United States. Mitch McConnell blocked Merrick Garland's confirmation for over a year and essentially deprived the president in power from the ability to appoint a Supreme Court justice and then rammed through Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation. She was confirmed one week before Joe Biden's election. This was a calculated political decision and the solution as terrible as and fraught and as stressful as it may be, will be political outcomes and political engagement. And that brings us to November. You're going to see this topic has now just become the most salient topic in American political discourse and likely will be until November in a way that no public policy issue really has potentially in my lifetime. So that is something to look out for. And there are nonprofits on both sides of this issue that are going to be ramping up and have already been ramping up in the, the hours since this decision has dropped. So something, something to look out for as a trend moving into the midterms this November. And as you said, races up and down that ballot. This is now a state's issue. Yeah, and it's going to be coming into I'm paying attention to how constitutions, state constitutions are actually going to matter quite a bit. Uh, California talking about putting it into, uh, into their constitution and, and whether or not we'll have like, you know, uh, abortion safe harbor states that will do more and more to allow people to come in and offer the support necessary for, for, uh, women seeking uh, medical treatment. Uh, there's also been a number of companies that have come out with policies, whether or not those policies are legal and the questions of saying like, Hey, you know. Because I know like Microsoft and like Google came out with these statements about saying how they would support a, a woman, uh, a woman's needs to, to travel and co cover the fees. But like, that means you, you're, you know, like that conversation with HR does not go easily in my mind. Something that should be very, very personal handled separately. It's, you know, another question of how companies, well, albeit well-intentioned, will be supporting this in the ways they can. Absolutely. The whole conversation has just shifted. Every organization has people affected. And we will look to see how that plays out. All right, Nick, what else are we seeing? All right, I'll take us into the summary. A little bit of good news, <laughs> overshadowed by more bad news potentially, but uh, this is from NPR.org, and it's about Biden signing in the new gun safety bill into law. This new law was the first movement on bipartisan gun safety legislation in Congress in over a decade. And among other things, it encourages uh, states to implement stricter red flag laws and other protections for, for mental health and safety to prevent mass shootings in particular. It's uh, pretty mild compared to what uh, gun control and gun safety advocates have been calling for, but as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it is something. Um, 
This bill was signed into law less than 24 hours, however, after the Supreme Court dropped a decision saying that New York State could not regulate firearms, uh, uh, carrying firearms outside of the household. So uh, our federal government is going in kind of two different directions here, but uh, good policy. We'll take it. We'll take it. That's a win in my book. Right. It's our narrative. Weak tea is better than no tea. And I think it's the first gun safety legislation passed by Congress in nearly 30 years. So uh, a step, but clearly we're still letting 18-year-olds get access to assault rifles that they can get on layaway. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. All right. I'll take us into our next story. And this is revisiting, of course, the crisis in Ukraine, which is less in the news as we expect with all news cycles, but still just as dire. And this comes from the New Humanitarian, which folks in the NGO world are probably familiar with. Really interesting reporting from folks who know the sector well. But talking about uh, the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine and uh, just the, the kind of flurry of activity, but still dire need in that crisis. And now that the war has become more protracted, particularly focused in the East, essentially a, a stalemate for all intents and purposes, the international community is quoted here of now warning of a three to five year response. And while there's tons of assistance so far, it's one of the best funded emergencies in the world, apparently 1.6 billion. Uh, has, has directly gone to this crisis. There's still a ton of need. You essentially have an entire country that is unable to function because it has been bombed. There are 10 million people in need of emergency food and supply assistance. There are 7 million internally displaced people, and there's approximately 10 million refugees who have fled the country altogether, let alone the basic functions of society like work and school and even things that are critical, like public sanitation. None of that can happen. None of that, none of that can happen in a country that's constantly being bombed. Kiev, again, was just bombed uh, by the Russians a couple days ago, as well as earlier, uh, seemingly trying to, you know, impose strength across the country. But the, the long story here is that this is going to be a protracted humanitarian emergency, and that in addition to humanitarian aid, it's going to have to shift into long-term development and rebuilding assistance, which is sadly going to take years and years and years. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, yeah, it's important to start taking account of how long it'll take to rebuild. But the problem is there's still very much active war going on. So keeping that mindset in place is obviously important. I remember when we were saying like, oh, maybe as many as 5 million people that will be dislocated or like relocated. And now it's like 10 million probably even more so in cities, it's getting level. Like just, it's not even like some damage, it's, it's state-sponsored murder. And when you level a city after city like this, there are high-density populations that are, that are in need to move and put stress in other areas. This is going to be something that will be worked on for the next decade. And, you know, cities that have this level of destruction can't be rebuilt that quickly. And it is not even clear what the final complexion of this war is going to be. Yeah, that's, that's fair. And uh, 
Ukraine was not a phenomenally wealthy country going into this war. So we will see. We'll keep an eye on that one. I like the humanitarian, the, the new humanitarian. You've been following uh, this journalistic site. What, what, is their, what is their deal? Yeah, so I did some digging on them. They used to be UN affiliated. They used to be run out of a UN office, but they went independent. They're an independent nonprofit news organization and have been so for maybe five or seven years. But really, really great reporting on the humanitarian sector by people who know it well. And yeah, I'd say they have a little bit of a point of view, which is critical of kind of the status quo of humanitarian aid and intervention which I think is refreshing and needed. But yeah, definitely kind of the go-to for uh, news story and analysis of international development and humanitarian response. Yeah, I really like their stuff. That's thenewhumanitarian.org. Absolutely. Give them a follow. All right, George, our next story comes from kff.org, which is the Kaiser Family Foundation. Full disclosure, Kaiser Family Foundation is a client. Uh, but this story here is that the healthcare debt in the United States is really, really high. A very long story, and it's the quickest way to summarize it, but a uh, really in-depth report that goes into how medical and dental bills are affecting both uninsured and insured adults, and to pretty crazy extremes. George, why'd you throw the story in? I think with obviously the the pandemic we're currently in the the compounded with the other fact that it's the number one reason that an American will declare bankruptcy because of healthcare costs. So despite tremendous amounts of money being poured into you know the the health of America through through the pandemic, this is still an underlying massive issue. That even when you've got things like health insurance. Uh, there are laws that won't even protect you from an anesthesiologist coming and being, oh, sorry, you didn't pay for that. You're like, I was like getting my arm freaking sewn back together. Like, what do you mean I'm supposed to check this? And so there's a lot of policy, I think, that KFF points to that can be uh, can be addressed. And, you know, it's it's a, a massive issue that we're in a country with the means and resources that writes you know, is he able to write massive checks, right? We printed 40% of our money in flu just the other year, and still uh, we can't deal with the fact that a third of adults, according to this report, a third of adults without care debt owe less than 1,000 or even small amounts, uh, they can have significant financial consequences. And most saying that they'd be unable to pay a $500 unexpected medical bill without borrowing money. So, you know, you can... It, it, it seems like the, the policy around our healthcare system is still very much in need of an, uh, an update and uh, liked looking at this bit of like macro report and, and analysis from Kim. Absolutely. Healthcare ever more salient a topic now that. Yeah. I think the total here. amount, oh, sorry, here's the total amount. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau of CFPB estimates that 88 billion in medical debt reflected on Americans' credit reports. So that's like, credit right so like <laughs> share of healthcare debt is, is quite sad george i have an interesting anecdote i lived in europe before my time at whole whale and i was instructed to give a lesson on like 
like life lesson in the US, like buying a house or like taxes and just for the students who knew nothing about life in the US. And I had to explain to them the concept that people can lose their houses due to medical bills or they can't afford housing or medical bills can be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, $100,000, depending on the condition and the severity. And they didn't believe me. They literally thought I was lying. And that was the end of the lesson. They're like, this isn't true. It's true. And that debt is crushing. Yeah, I mean, the stat is that four in 10 adults currently have debt due to medical or dental bills. I mean, 40% of our population is still struggling with with debt, especially during a period of inflation, it's got to be absolutely crushing and stuff. It's it's something that is a a macro impact. And the, why we're bringing it up is you can use these data, I think, to better tell the story of your stakeholders. If you are serving a population of folks that are living below median income, like this is something that's impacting 40% of them. It's an extra narrative that you can bring to donors, that you can bring to your work. And so that's another reason I've Absolutely. I know we don't have a feel good because somebody, namely me, just left the old feel good in there. Sorry about that. We do have a quote. We do have a quote that I updated. So often in life, things that you regard as pediment turn out to be great. Good fortune. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It again is my hope that as we watch the social justice pendulum swing toward the elimination of a fundamental right or women in this country that uh, there will be an equal and opposite reaction uh, yet to be seen it might actually end up being good fortune for waking up our population to what our fundamental rights should be and how hard we need to fight for them absolutely all right nick thank you for summarizing all this incredible work thanks george appreciate it This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 